Buried Alive, tonight you will visit a historic plantation in Virginia. I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Oh boy, do we have a treat for you this evening. We're so happy that you can join us again. Uh, originally, our, our story, we were going to talk about uh, another place that uh, I believe you had visited uh, while you were in Virginia. Again, we're going back to Gloucester County. For you, those of you who do, do not know about this, it's one of our favorite places to talk about haunted uh, locales. Um, and the, the name of the place is White Marsh. Yes, and uh, just to uh, remind uh, everybody, um, about 50 years ago, it was about 50 years ago that uh, I was uh, a, a producer with a local uh, TV show, a TV station rather, and we had decided to do a, a special Halloween project and go around the area and uh, locate the different legends and film the different uh, haunted uh, spots. And so absolutely, White Marsh was one of the ones at the very top of our list, highly recommended by folks. Uh, this was a, a must include in our Halloween special. So would you say it was a five star haunting? Yes, I would. Although there's one that tops the list and that one's coming down the road. Yeah, later. we're going to we're going <laughs> to save that for later because yeah. that one, in my opinion, I think that's definitely uh, one of the top stories uh, of all time that, that you that have is the yeah. creme de la creme. So, but white marsh, let's, uh, let's not, uh, say that that's any, uh, shabby thing because it's not, it's, uh, oh, pretty no. incredible. And so of course, uh, my task was to do two things, Gary. It was to drum up some of the history connected with the house correct, and the legends. Right. And we used to joke about it on the uh, crew that any of these old houses, in order to really have uh, maximum real estate value, they needed both. They needed history, and they needed a legend. Sure. White Marsh had both. Mm -hmm. So the history of this area, which we haven't mentioned so far, let's just uh, talk about Gloucester County, Virginia, uh, back in the colonial days, Gary. And did you know that it was one of the richest parts of the Virginia colony? I, we've never mentioned that before. No, no. I, you know, I think last time we barely even scratched the surface of some of the things that they, that had happened. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, if they had places like this, uh, it, uh, White Marsh had a land grant from the 1640s dating back to the 1640s, wow. the actual, uh, colonial mansion that I visited with the film crew was built in the 1700s, but back in the colonial days, Gary, that place had 3000 acres. 3,000 uh -huh. acres? 3,000 acres. On those acres, there were forests, there was farmland, there were lawns, there were gardens, there were fruit orchards. It was massive. Yeah. Oh, I, I can imagine. Now, I, I know um, when we were doing research on some of the other homes, there were situations where somebody had started building their house but died uh, during the making of the house because it took so long that mm -hmm. their children or relatives ended up inheriting the house yeah and finishing it off and uh talk about dying uh you know each era they had between 300 and 500 slaves working this plantation oh my gosh so just imagine over the years how many of those slaves they may have had to bury on the property 
that's kind of startling. Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, however, that if you go to the family graveyard today, there's only two or three headstones left. Really? Yeah. And of course, we know that a lot more people than that were buried in that family cemetery. Oh, I'm sure. So anyhow, uh, let's talk about uh, 1676, uh, which was about 20 years after White Marsh uh, received its land grant from the king. Uh, in 1676, uh, a fellow by the name of Nathaniel Bacon stood on the Gloucester County uh, Courthouse steps, and he was recruiting volunteers for a rebellion against the royal governor who lived over there in Williamsburg. Yeah. Now, uh, the governor didn't capture Nathaniel Bacon. Uh, it was actually dysentery that did him in. Oh. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. When you mention that, uh, one of my favorite games as a kid and still now as an adult is the Oregon Trail. And for some reason, dysentery always gets gets you. Yeah, it's, that's that it. Was, I mean, yeah. you know, it's a horrible way to go, but yeah. it's usually back in those days. That was that was the number one one. And uh, you know, it didn't matter what kind of health he was in. Uh, he was uh, 29 years old when he died. Wait, hold on. He died at 29 from dysentery. He did. Oh, I hope they didn't put that on the gravestone. Nathaniel Bacon, and of course, he's famous in history. Anybody studying U.S. history, they are going to come across. Nathaniel Bacon and Bacon's Rebellion, but he only lived to be 29 years old. Now, his followers, though, were afraid that the governor would take his dead body and publicly hang it. So, Bacon's followers secretly buried him somewhere in the soil of Gloucester County. We don't know where. Really? Yeah. It's never been found. And so... All I can say is you wonder why this place has so many tales of haunted houses? Just look at this kind of history. Well, are we sure that they buried him in Gloucester County? And the only reason why I say this is if they were trying to keep it secret, is it possible they could have buried him somewhere else? In much the same way like when we were talking about George Wythe, George Wythe was never buried anywhere near his house. He was buried somewhere else. Yeah, it's possible. He could have been uh, buried in rural Matthews County. But again, uh, people back in those days wouldn't go long distances for something like that. So I think you can pretty much count on the fact that somewhere in Gloucester County, uh, he is buried. And don't forget, uh, if White Marsh had 3,000 acres, he could he could have been buried uh, on the White Marsh grounds. And, that could be. And uh, amongst 3,000 acres, you'd never find a... Uh, single grave like that or maybe with a different headstone nothing that bared uh, his name yeah i don't think they even put a headstone they really wanted it secret so the governor wouldn't be able to find him and dig him up and and then publicly uh hang him to make a point but so that's anyhow, very macabre yeah it is isn't it I, but <clears throat> not to interrupt what you were saying but some of those practices um there were situations i know um during the 17 and 1800s where they would publicly display the bodies of people that rebelled against uh you know the the state or the country or people who were you know infamous uh robbers or or murderers or things like that and just thinking about it now you know when when you put somebody's body on display for the enjoyment of others it's kind of and uh, I don't think it was Shocking. so much for enjoyment as it was to make a political point. You know, uh, yeah, I guess frighten that's, others from uh, the same kind of behaviors. That's probably the best way to put it. Not so much enjoyment, but I, but yeah, just to make a point. But still, uh, we had some very, very peculiar ways of of dealing with people back in the day. 
Yes, we did. And what I'm going to do now, Gary, is ask you to relate the story that was most connected with White Marsh back then when we were doing the Halloween special. And I'm going to say this. There is a very, very unusual twist to this story you're about to tell that we'll let everybody know about at the end. Oh, that is right. Now, let me tell you all the story of White Marsh as it was told to me. So just to kind of give you an idea, this is taking place around the same time as Lady Skipwith and uh, some of our other friends uh, that are, you know, around during the early part of American history in Gloucester County. And we're going to be talking about a father and his daughter in this situation. Now, the two of them live together in the home, and something we're not sure what happened to the daughter, something that caused her to get sick. And they went to that tried-true method of using the leeches, we had talked about this before, to help cure her of what ailed her. Now, much like what had happened to many other people who had leeches put on them and the leeches were overused, the girl became anemic. And this anemia put her into a coma. And because in these early years of American history in the 16 and 1700s, they were unaware of what a coma was. They didn't have the machinery to detect heartbeats or, or breathing. So naturally they assumed that the girl was dead. So they planned a funeral and this grieving father buried his daughter in the family plot near the garden behind the house. She was dressed in a simple dress. Her fingers were adorned with beautiful rings, necklaces, things of this nature. After she was buried, the legend says that a butler, a servant working in the house, who was angered because he felt that he was not paid the money he was owed for the job that he did for the family, decided that he would dig up the body of the daughter and take the jewelry from her dead body and sell it to get the money he felt he was owed. So that evening, with the dirt still fresh from the, her just being buried, he went out to that family plot and he dug down deep into the dirt until he reached her coffin. He popped open the lid and from his pocket he pulled a knife. He knew that her fingers probably would be swollen because bodies bloat as they begin to decay. And it would be almost impossible to get the rings off of those swollen fingers. He would have to cut them off. So he took the knife and with one swoop, he cut off the finger with the rings on it. Now this cutting into the flesh, the severing of nerves and tendons, it woke the girl up out of her comatose state. She sat up in the coffin, and folks, I don't know about you, but if I saw a dead body sitting up out of a coffin, well, I'd have one or two things happen. 
I'd either die right there of a heart attack or I would have taken off running straight towards the next county. Now, as far as I know, he didn't die, but I can guarantee you his feet were moving fast as they could to carry him away as far as he could get. The girl woken up out of this coma, very weak. Her, her muscles have been atrophied from being, you know, asleep for so long. She could barely pull herself up out of that grave. She moved slowly walking through the freshly fallen snow because this was wintertime. She made her way to the house, leading with every step, her heart pumping, and every time it pumped, the blood squirted from the stump. She made it to the back of the house, and with her, her last ounce of strength, you can imagine this, with her last ounce of strength, she began to scratch at the back door. Her father, sitting inside, still grieving at the loss of his daughter, unaware that she was just outside. He ignored the sounds, thinking that it was the dogs trying to get into the house. The next morning, when he opened the door, he found his daughter on the back step, frozen in the snow. Now it is said that when the first snowflakes of winter fall and blanket the ground in that fresh powder white, folks say that they can see the bloody footsteps of the girl in that snow. They also say that her tears from her crying, trying to get inside, water the violets that grow just outside of that back door. Violets that they say grow more beautiful than any other flower in that garden. This is the story that I was told about White Marsh. But here's the twist. It's not White Marsh. Uh, in doing the research, we found out that this story is actually connected with another haunted house in Gloucester County, which happens to be Church Hill. Yes, Church Hill is also situated on the Ware River and not very far from White Marsh. But this was the story we were led to believe would be the uh, story we'd put on uh, t uh, TV connected with White Marsh. Absolutely no connection with White Marsh whatsoever. None whatsoever. No, it actually is connected with Church Hill. Church Hill is the, the house that has that story. And uh, was it violets or was it uh, lavender? It was violets. Violets, yeah. So, <clears throat> violets at uh, Church Hill. Right. And they, so your next question has to be... My next question is, if that's the story connected with Church Hill, then what's the real story that's connected with White Marsh? That's the real question, right? So we looked a little bit further into this and found out that White Marsh has a lot of stories connected to it the Church Hill story not being one of them. But what we did find out is that a family by the name of Hughes had moved into this house. And the husband and wife had been living there for a while. The, the home had this beautiful rose bush that had been planted there by the original family. And Mrs. Hughes 
in the reports, uh, apparently had gone over to pluck one of the roses from the rose bush. But then the rose bush started to sway and move. The, the rose even seemed to move away from her hand when she reached for it, as if it had a life of its own, which is bizarre. But then there was also a banging behind her from the shutters. So now we got the shutters going, slamming against the walls and the windows. The bushes rustling around. Mrs. Hughes is freaked out. So she goes and tells her husband about this. He thinks it's a load of malarkey. So he decides to go over there and check it out for himself and has the exact same experience happen. So after this whole incident... Mr. Hughes, Mrs. Hughes, they're getting really frustrated with the whole thing and decide they want nothing to do with the rosebush. So they talk to the groundskeeper and say, get rid of the rosebush. So a few weeks later, they come back. They notice that the rosebush is gone. They thank the, uh, the groundskeeper for getting rid of it. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I really haven't had time to take care of that. So now the question is, what happened to the rosebush? Now, I seriously doubt that the rosebush grew legs and decided, I'm out of here, and took off. Uh, but then again, you know, what would a ghost do with a rose bush if it took it out of there? I mean, you know, it's not like they have a, a ghostly garden of their own. Although I guess they could, who knows? Uh, it's just, these are the stories that, uh, that surround White Marsh. Okay. That being said, um, when we were prepping for this, uh, and we were talking about Churchill and White Marsh, I had remembered a story similar to the one with uh, Churchill, um, with a woman being buried alive unknowingly, and then uh, somebody, a grave robber, coming and removing the ring from her finger uh, by cutting it off. Uh, so it, it was very familiar to me, so I had to look it up. And the story that I'm talking about actually comes from a book, one of my favorite childhood books, called Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, written by Alvin Schwartz. Uh, and this book, which is a little bit of a side note, um, came out, in, I believe, in the 80s and was infamous uh, because of its artwork. Uh, maybe not so much the stories, but the artwork was absolutely horrifying. And this book could be found in uh, libraries in every single elementary school across the country. I know uh, I got my first copy of things, the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, uh, from the Page One bookstore in Las Vegas when I was in the third grade, and I was fascinated by the artwork, which is just, it's gorgeous. If you like um, gothic, macabre kind of uh, artwork, it's its beautiful. Um, but Alvin Schwartz was a storyteller. He uh, was famous for doing uh, stories, I believe, for uh, DC Comics on Superman. That's how he got his start. But he had an interest in folk tales, and so he would go around collecting these folk tales from around uh, the world and uh, throughout the United States. And he put these collection of stories into his books. And he had um, three books, um, all with the same name, More Scary uh, Stories to Tell in the Dark and Even More Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. But uh, in the second book, he has a story called The Ring on Her Finger. And this story is very similar to Church Hill, um, but different in that instead of it being a father and his daughter, it is a husband and a wife. And uh, this man's wife um, falls into a coma, uh, but he believes that she's dead. She gets buried, and then she's dug up again, and uh, the grave robber goes to get the ring and realizes he has to cut off the finger. 
In this story, he never fully cuts off the finger. The moment the blade touches her finger, she wakes up and he knocks over his lamp and can't see. And she asks who he is and he can't get his words out. He goes to run away and he falls and trips, landing in her open coffin and lands on his knife. He dies in the story. And then she walks off into the night. And that's kind of how the story ends. But in the back of the book, in the notes um, that were put there by Alvin Schwartz, and in his research, it speaks about how this story um, was an older story that he had adapted in his own way. Uh, and there had been many stories like that because it was often very common uh, back in those times for people to be mistakenly buried alive. I know there's um, a lots of legends that, you know, that happened to uh, George Washington that at one point when his body was exhumed for whatever reason, uh, some say that they found claw marks inside of the lid of his coffin. Um, there, was an even, there was even an account that a woman had asked to be put uh, in a tomb without a lid on her coffin so that if she did wake up for whatever reason, uh, she would be able to call out. Uh, they even had um, bells that you could buy this coffin that had a hole that had a string that would go through it and it would attach to a bell above ground and somebody would sit out there waiting for, I guess, a few days and listening for that bell. So this was something that was obviously a concern back in the olden times with people and, um, and lent itself to a lot of stories. So I guess we have to ask in that way uh, whether or not this story is true or if it's just part of American folklore. Not just American folklore, but this uh, buried alive story uh, goes all the way back hundreds of years to England, too. That's true. So I think for the most part, we can probably rate this as fiction connected with Churchill and uh, uh, mistakenly connected with White Marsh at that time. <laughs> at that time. So, well, uh, thank you again, guys. I hope you enjoyed yourself. And uh, once again, I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And this was our incredible story.